The challenges for parents of kids on the autism spectrum, transgender bathrooms in schools, does the ATAR measure creativity effectively, and what will the Uber for universities look like? Hello and welcome to the first edition of APN Educational Media's Week in Review podcast. My name is Patrick Avenal and I'm the news editor here at APN. I'm joined by education editor James Wells from Campus Review and Education Review. Hi, James. Hello. And Lauren Smith from Early Learning Review. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Patrick. We'll start with some background about the titles and this new podcast. Uh, So APN Educational Media has three titles covering the nurturing and teaching of people from preschool age with the Early Learning Review, that's Lauren's title, through to primary and high school via Education and Review and then Higher Education which is university, TAFE, vocational training, and other tertiary forms in Campus Review. And James is an editor and journalist across both Education Review and Campus Review. And as the news editor, I work across all three, creating the websites, proofreading, and also writing some stories. The aim of this podcast is to look back on the week that was and discuss some of the more interesting stories that we've been covering. So in part one, for the sake of continuity, we'll start at preschool, with Lauren, and Early Learning Review published a fascinating post this week by an RMIT academic about some of the challenges faced by parents of kids on the autism spectrum. Lauren, tell us more. So this academic actually has a child who has autism and she talks of the challenges of telling people about this and the fact that often she says nothing when people ask her about it. And the reason for this is because As a parent of a child with autism, you spend so much time talking about the worst aspects of this condition and you get to a point where you'd rather say nothing because you're so exhausted by talking through all of those negative aspects. She speaks of the the fact that diagnosis can take up to a year because there's a waiting list for funded mental health services then applications for funding post-diagnoses can also take a long time. So there's that fatigue in, in waiting. And throughout this period of time, you're constantly talking about the difficulties with your child, the struggles, and you're not really directed to talk about their strengths, their interests, and their desires. One of the more interesting quotes from this story was when uh Kim Brown, the academic, says that she's often asked to talk about her child's worst possible day with the worst possible behaviours. And that's interesting Mm. because the early years learning framework actually promotes a strengths-based approach where you talk about the strengths of the child. So it's interesting that when it comes to conditions like autism, that isn't promoted and that's an issue that this academic wishes to address. And kids on the spectrum do have their strengths. For one, I believe, I believe Steven Spielberg, the director, is on the spectrum. So often they're able to just get this insight. They, they can focus on one task very, very, um, to a lot more depth and a lot more, in, like have, a, have an encyclopedic knowledge about it that people off the spectrum don't have. So as in they, they can know everything there is to know about cephalopods, squids, or something like that. Or they, So that would make them, of course, a great marine biologist. Yeah, so if you get my point. I do. I think that the way we perceive autism is changing a lot as well. Like in popular culture, like films, for so long autism was was depicted as you know incommunica- incommunicability, uh, and often focused on a bad behaviour and acting up. When we're seeing films coming out now, and I saw a recent one called X and Y, which is about uh, a young uh, maths whiz who I guess the, the the word we would have used to used was Asperger's, but now we just say that they're they're placed on the spectrum. 
And I thought that was a really interesting film because that showed like the strengths of a person uh, who's very good at maths and is coming to terms with building relationships with people and overcoming some of the challenges. Absolutely, and there, there is evidence to show that children with autism can be helped in their particular um, issues such as sociability for instance so we shouldn't be focusing on their weaknesses instead supporting them through those and also considering their particular strengths you've got to train educators to be able to do that though you can't just um put a especially it's a big issue with schools and it's part it's part of the reason i'm not excusing what happened in schools with the kids with autism being put in cages you've got, we've all heard that horrible story but part of that issue was that kids um teachers are already overworked and then they'd have a, this child with autism just thrown into their class and they weren't they weren't trained to to deal with some of the behaviors that those kids might have and obviously and as it, it brings back to how we all f- always focus on the negative aspects of autism so they have that in their head they have the they, have, they might have the kid playing up for whatever reason trying to calm down this kid as well as the rest of the class and then it, it obviously escalated. I'm not excusing behaviour but it, I think it did contribute to that particular incident. Did, did, uh, did Kimbrough have a solution? Is it simply just funneling more money into it or is it about how that money is spent and how we, and how we think about autism? She didn't give a solution but what she did say is that we need to start speaking about autism in a more multifaceted way and I think you know, even by publishing pieces such as this one, we are starting that conversation. So hopefully that will snowball. Excellent. And you can read the full story at earlylearningreview.com.au. It's under the headline, Opinion, The Silent Strengths of Children with Spectrum Disorders. Now in part two, we're going to look at primary and high school. And during the week, I spoke to Dr. David Rhodes, a senior lecturer at Edith Cohen University, who specializes in education and inclusiveness and we talked at length about the growing issue of bathroom facilities for trans kids at schools in Australia and just to give a a brief overview of what some of these words mean a a transgendered person is a person whose biological sex organs so on their birth certificate perhaps what they would what they were classified when they were born male or female don't match the gender that they're sort of growing into Uh, so you can have a, a trans woman is a woman who at birth was assigned as a male and a trans man is a, is a man who at birth was assigned as a woman. And uh, the opposite of trans is called cisgendered and that's a person whose biological sex organs match their gender. So in, in the United States, this has been an issue that's been bubbling away for a while. Uh, trans people at schools and trans people in the workplace are believing that they should have be able to access the bathroom that matches their gender as opposed to their sex. And in North Carolina, the state government passed a bill saying that all people could only access the the public bathroom that matched their uh, sex as assigned at birth. So what that means is that if if you're a trans woman and you've been using the women's bathroom, and there's a very good chance that nobody in your, your workplace knew about that, you were then suddenly by law forced to use the men's bathroom and vice versa. Schools, it's a little bit different because often the transition will take place while a person's at school. So people will know that they've started school as a, as a boy or a girl and then they've transitioned into a, a, a man or a woman during their schooling. So people are aware of it and there's knowledge of it. And thankfully in Australia, most people are quite accepting of this. There was a, a very interesting story on Four Corners about it. And, the, and there's been articles written about it by trans people saying that they, they have been accepted when transitioning at school. But I wanted to read out 
one of the quotes from uh, Dr. David Rhodes when I asked him what he thought the situation was for schools and uh, what bathroom facilities they should provide. And he said, as far as gender neutral bathrooms go, I think there needs to be a number of toilet facilities around schools, not just the one. And don't re just relabel the disabled toilets. Provide a designated gender neutral toilets where all students can go. I asked him if that meant that he thought that there should be three distinct blocks, uh, male, female and all access. And he replied, no. In an ideal world, I would be saying that we wouldn't have toilet blocks at all, that we would just have toilets where students could go regardless of their gender. What I would be saying is, rather than thinking about it in terms of boys, girls and gender neutral, that we have toilet systems available that are gender neutral and that are open for anyone to use. A student doesn't necessarily need to be transsexual to use them. And Dr. David Rhodes went on to say that he feels the same way about other social constructs like school uniforms that school uniforms should be more gender neutral rather than a tunic for girls and uh, you know, a, a junior suit for boys. Uh, Lauren, uh, do you think that uh, people, trans people should be able to use the, their choice of bathroom or do you think that they should be using the bathroom assigned on their birth certificate? I think that they should be able to use whatever bathroom they feel comfortable in. A bathroom is a private place for you to do your business and it shouldn't matter whether you're male or female when you're using it. And if you're using it inappropriately, well, that's another issue entirely that should not be caught up in this debate about transgender students. I know when I went to uni, we all had, in our residential colleges at Charles Sturt University, Bathurst, all the toilets in, in needs where the students lived on campus are all gender neutral. We all just use the same bathroom. At my residential hall at the Australian National University, <laughs> the bathrooms were uh, assigned, there were three on each floor, and one of them was assigned as female and two of them were assigned as unisex, is the term that was used. And the idea was that, uh, broadly speaking, boys in that age range, 18 to 25, tended to care less about uh, you know, sharing a bathroom with members of the opposite sex. Whereas uh, some women, definitely all, tended to care more. Uh, I, I wonder if that is an approach that could be adopted broadly or whether that would be considered uh, you know, too defining in its own way. And that leaves it open to what, what if, the, what if um, there's boys in, in the cohort who don't feel comfortable sharing a bathroom with women when, and girls get their own special bathroom. Yeah, that, that's the that's mm. the argument that can always come up mm, with, with that the, system. There's no, doesn't ever seem to be a good reason, as in why male and females when they go to the bathroom separately. Um, the whole we all do our business behind closed doors. I hope. <laughs> um, well, I think yeah. one of the issues with that is uh, you say we all do our business behind closed doors, but that's not actually true. That that's far from the truth in terms of male bathrooms. Male bathrooms. That's true. That's true. But why shouldn't there be options? So if a transgender male, for instance, uh, wants to, he, you know, they as transgender people prefer to be called can use a private cubicle as opposed to a urinal, for instance. So there's still that option there. I don't see why we need separate bathrooms. James, you wrote a story this week in which you spoke to Meredith Melville-Jones from Bradfield Senior College about one of the many faults with ATAR. Tell us about what uh, what this problem is. <laughs> there are many faults of ATAR, but the main the main problem, basically, Meredith has with it is that ATAR is purely academic. It's a ranking of how you performed academically uh, compared to all your peers. That's essentially her issue. What with it was that 
it doesn't measure your creative skills, it doesn't measure your other types of intelligence that exist outside the academic academic spectrum of intelligence. So there's your street smarts, there's your creative skills, and probably a whole heap of other types of um, brain smarts that I, could, I can't really list right now. But anyway, so she's the um, principal and director of Sydney's Bradfield Senior College, which is also integrated with a, with a TAFE. The biggest issue with it, in her opinion, and I actually do agree with her, is that it, it requires students to narrow their intelligence so narrow that they have to focus on rote learning, say, mathematical problems. They, I remember when I was doing my year 12 history and English, we were memorising essays. Literally, there were people memorising 800-word essays to f- and they'd tailor the introduction to the question because that's what we were just told that the teachers would just read the intro and conclusion. That was the most important part. Lauren, the ATAR, do you, do you think that it's it's a successful way or a, a good way of measuring uh, students' abilities before they go to university? I don't think so. I agree with James and with Meredith Melville-Jones because my experience too was one of rote learning and my friends wrote learning and you didn't necessarily have to be intelligent or even have a good memory to do that. You just have to be quite diligent if you didn't have a good memory. And if you did, you just have to memorize an essay the night before and just spill it out the next day without having much thought to the content of what you were writing. So I think there has to be a better way of measuring uh, intelligence uh, in terms of university entrance. ATAR does seem to have a habit of rewarding book smarts as opposed to sort of intuition or, or skills. I, I, and I was interested in one of the quotes that, that Meredith uh, gave James this story, and I'll read it out. She said, I had a wonderfully compliant academic son who lapped up everything the high school certificate had to offer, and he's still studying at 25. I also have another son who is incredibly abstract and creative, who struggled so hard through the HSC and came out the other end disillusioned and flat and restricted and confined. That's an interesting adjective she used to describe her act- academic son. Compliant. Is that what the ATR rewards? Compliancy? Um, to an extent, yes. You play, you, you game the system, you play by the rules, you get a good ATAR. Do, do you feel that way? Do you feel so in, in your experience when you were at Year 12, Lauren, that people who played by the rules did better than those who tried to express themselves? I agree, and I think that um, you know, teacher favouritism came into it as well. Um, if you regurgitated what a particular teacher liked, you'd be mm. rewarded for that. So in that sense, students' thinking was repre- repressed, I believe. Now in part four, we're going to move to university. And last week, APN hosted its annual Future Proof Conference for the higher education sector. And one of the more interesting speakers was Simon Essen from IBM. He spoke about the impending disruption that he's predicting for the university business model. James, you were there. What did he have to say? Uh, Simon, he's a bit of a bombastic technocrat, this, bo- this guy. Um, so he's basically, he's from the tech multinational IBM, which is, as he, as he pointed out, doesn't make computers anymore. It's, it's a big tech tech multinational focused on AI, cognitive computing, and all this other fancy tech stuff, which is just goes through, goes through everyone's heads, and, and then we all find out it's going to steal our jobs. <laughs> um, so he, he presented at, a, at Campus Review's um, Future Proof 2016 conference, and he he tore apart the university business model where you go to university, you study for three or four years, you pay tens of thousand dollars, you get a degree, you may or may not get a job, but you get some debt. And he basically said that that corporates like Google, Apple, Amazon will still university's customers, which are their students. He referred to students as customers because that's what they are. And he gave the current business model about five, ten years. 
and the justification for his argument was the the is it's the, it's the off-sided thing about Uber. It's the it's the world's biggest, most innovative taxi company. Doesn't own a taxi. Airbnb, most innovative, most up-and-coming hotel chain, doesn't actually own a hotel. So he he predicts that a similar thing will happen to universities, but he didn't actually give a um a specific business model. He didn't he didn't propose one. But what was interesting was um Peter Rowan, who was also um speaking at, at Future Proof. And he also said university business models need to change. He wrote, he, he wrote a full report on it for Ernst & Young. Now he's a consultant working with several universities. But he says students will still go to universities, universities still have a bit of time to catch up because they still want the brand power behind said university's name. If you get a Harvard degree, it's, it's prestigious. University of Melbourne degree, it's prestigious. So on and so forth. So, yeah, and one of the interesting things about his presentation is he really did paint the picture of the university sector has all this money sloshing around in it, going back and forth between the government to the universities, then becoming debt that a person pays back when they start earning $54,000. And it, that, that system just, it, it does seem very ineffective and very pre-internet, pre-modern. And it, there is so much money there that it's hard to believe that it won't be disrupted effectively by a better business model that comes along in the same way that Uber did come along famously and destroy the taxi business model, which was also a huge amount of money sloshing around ineffectively. So uh, my question to you, Lauren, is uh, would you do an online degree if it was cheaper, but not from a, a bricks and mortar university that came with all the brand and the prestige? I think it depends on the type of degree. If it's the sort of degree that's information heavy, then I might consider it, whereas if it's the kind of degree that's more practical, I might not. So I think it depends, and it also depends on the university that's offering it and the quality and how that quality is perceived in the marketplace. I'm just going to jump in there. I think one of the biggest flaws, as, as inefficient as universities are, one of the biggest flaws of Eastman's arguments is that people don't go to university just for the degree. People go to physical campus because they want the social interaction. So you think that the social interaction is, is the USP that a university has, that mm. it can keep the, this business model going. That's what they have that online learners don't have. Interacting someone to online is definitely not, it's the same as me and you talking together, we're face to face right now. So, and I can't, I can't read your facial expressions online unless we're doing continuously Skype calling, which... What if one of the online universities was to under, underwrite the cost of it to make it cheaper by a sponsorship with like a beer company so that then you could binge drink as well while doing your online learning and sort of, you know, replicating the, yeah, the university experience? Who wants to binge drink with other people binge drinking behind a computer screen? No, if you're binge drinking on a university campus, you want to go to college and binge drink. <laughs> Just speaking from a postgraduate student perspective, I'm a current postgraduate student I don't really care about the social interaction. That's not why I'm there. I'm there to get the degree. So I think it also depends on your life stage and yeah. what you're looking for. Undergrad online, post undergrad, sorry, offline, in person, and then postgrad, you transition that into an online app-based space. Yeah. That could work. Uh, caveat, I'm 21 years old and just graduated from my first undergraduate degree. I partly went to Charles Sturt because of the social aspect. So yeah, but... So I think undergraduate degrees, especially when you're dealing with a lot younger demographic at fresh out of school, they want to see some of the world. Yeah, they'll go to uni and live the classic college life still. Lauren, will universities still be around for the next generation, do you think? I don't think so. At the rate of change that we're seeing in the world, uh, I think they're ripe for, dare I say, disruption. I know. I, you know, mm. there was a time when you would have thought 
the horse and cart. It'll be here forever. But universities in Australia and England, they still have a lot of public money behind them. They still get that money from the taxpayer. I, I yeah. just can't foresee a world in which big companies aren't going to look at all the money that governments are throwing at universities and say, we want to take a share of that. And if that means Apple University or Google mm. University, so, so it's a way of getting that money, I think that they'll find a way to do it. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure that the Stanford brand or the Cambridge brand or the Melbourne University brand yeah. is going to be as strong to the next generation of kids coming through who tend to be a lot more brand agnostic than mm. our people our age and older people. Well, interestingly, uh, I met a guy last night whose son went to the University of Melbourne and who was then offered a job by Google, but turned that down in favour of starting his own company. So mm. maybe even one day the Googles of the world won't even have the same cachet as they do now. I think we're already seeing that. Disruptor, disruptors. We love buzzwords here. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that brings to a close our first uh, Week in Review podcast here for APN Educational Media. So you can check out the stories in full at educationreview.com.au, campusreview.com.au, and earlylearningreview.com.au. Thanks very much, James and Lauren, for your time. Thanks, no Thank you.